This is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. We are in Alito, Texas today, visiting with David Barton, founder of Wall Builders. Uh, Mr. Barton, thanks for having us in Alito today in your office. We Trey, great it. to be with you. Thanks for coming to the country, man. Absolutely. Country. I'm looking out this window behind you at... Uh, some rolling hills. I don't see any cows out there, but it looks like a, a cow's happy place. They kind of move across okay. throughout the day. Gotcha. And, and if you keep watching, you'll see some wild turkeys go through every once in a while. We get all sorts of, of, of stuff out there, both wild and domestic. I, you know, if I sit in here all day, I'm not sure I'd get anything productive done because I just stare out the window. <laughs> this is this is a much lower stress environment when you look outside, but on the inside, it is busy, hectic, and active. I'm sure. So this is the exact opposite of my office because I stare out the window at the capital, which just stresses me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just seeing the pictures enough to do that. So for our audience's uh, sake, you were born and raised in Alito, Texas. Uh, graduated from Oral Roberts University. In 1987, you founded Specialty Research Associates. In 1988, you changed the name to Wall Builders, which is based on the Old Testament writings of Nehemiah. So I, I think when people initially hear wall builders, they think you're an immigration group, I assume. Yeah, that's, especially now with, a, with the campaign and Trump and building right. the wall, et cetera. Right. They go, oh, are you helping Trump? No, actually, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. Nothing to do with immigration. Nothing to do at all. Well, Time Magazine once called you a hero to millions, including some of the most powerful politicians in the country. And that was a direct quote out of this Time Magazine article. And they also named you one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. Well, you know you can't trust the media. <laughs> blow that stuff off. Unless, unless you like it, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. Then, then you buy it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, then it's okay. That's then right. It's okay. You've also authored uh, numerous best-selling books uh, with subjects largely being drawn from the library that we just saw, uh, where you have tens of thousands of original writings from the Founding Fathers. Uh, which is incredible, mm -hmm. and the artifacts that you have in there is absolutely incredible. Yeah, we have um, about 120,000 documents from before 1812, so we're considered to be one of the largest collections of founding era materials in the country, uh, and then, you know, thousands and thousands of stuff from thereafter. So as you get in the Civil War, or you get in the Spanish-American War, or World War One, or World War Two, or you get into education history, or church history, or black history, or whatever, well, I mean, we've got tons of stuff on it for sure. So you let me in on a little secret when we were walking around the library earlier, and you said that you were really never a fan of history. Oh, I hated it. Hate it. <laughs> well, and, and see, here I am now. I'm very I held the the office of state vice chairman, of the Republican Party, of Texas, for nine years, the longest right. that that's ever been held in Texas history. I have recruited hundreds of people for office, trained thousands of people for office held office nine years myself, um, and then I have been involved in seven cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, dozens of lower court cases, um, and have this huge history collection. And I grew up here in Alito as a cowboy, right. and four things I hated were law and government, history and politics. And those are the four <laughs> things I stayed away from. And lo and behold, here I am today in every single one of them. God has amazing plans for everyone, doesn't oh, it, he? It's like I've always said, when you say the word never, it's like holding up a red flag to a bull. I say, oh, I got that. I heard that. I'll, I'll make sure you do that. You know, if you say never, it's like, oh, really? We'll see who's in charge of life here. And, That's right. And just, 
And so all those never things, well, here I am, doing sure. them all of them. Sure, and, and doing an incredible job at it, I might say. Yeah, thank you, very kind. So uh, tell, tell our audience, share with our audience, what, what exactly is Wall Builders and what's your objective and your purpose? Wall Builders is, uh, as you mentioned, it's the name from the Bible book of Nehemiah. And in that Bible book, you have the greatest grassroots story in the scriptures. And in that particular case, uh, Israel had been overrun by an adversary and enemy uh, they've been in bondage for a number of years, and Nehemiah says, hey, let, let's rebuild this place. And back then, your walls were the strength of the city. If you had no walls, the enemy comes in anytime they want. If you sure. got walls, you got the greater your walls, the greater your strength. And so wall builders, Nehemiah in, in chapter 2, 17, he told the people, he said, look at the stress we're in. Let's rebuild the walls so that we'll no longer be a reproach. We said, you know, that's a great figurative look at America. Right. If, we, if we can rebuild the things that have been torn down, the things that made us strong, if we can get that, we can be a strong, great nation. And we are, and we have been, but we're losing it in some areas. And, and, and so, you know, historically, there's some areas we've been much stronger than we are now. And so that was our call, is getting people involved. And what I loved about the story of Nehemiah was it wasn't the professionals that did it. And in their case, they literally had to lay stones. And so you read the book and you say, there's a perfume maker out there laying stones. What's he know about masonry? <laughs> right. And there was a soldier and, and there was a priest and there was a, a man and his daughters. And, and what's really cool is they all said, this is too much destruction. We'll never be able to rebuild this. And 52 days later, it was all done Amazing. because everybody did something. And so that really is our emphasis, um, just speaking statistically. We do tons of polling. I mean, we we keep up with tens of thousands of polls over the last 30 years, and especially looking at trends. But statistically speaking, since 1980, only one out of six Americans chooses the president of the United States. Since 1980, right. only one out of eight Americans chooses governors, senators, and, and congressmen. And that's why we say, hey, we need everybody involved. If we get all hands on deck, we can turn country around in a heartbeat. Because when one out of six people is choosing your president, statistically speaking, sure, that ain't good. Not good at all. That's not good. And so that's really what we do. Now, the way we do that is through what I would call historical reclamation. And again, going back to scriptures, there's a great story of Josiah, who was re he was the king of Israel. He was rebuilding the country. And in the midst of rebuilding the country, he found this old scroll in the temple, and they brought it out and read it, and they go, oh my gosh, we used to be like this? I never <laughs> knew this. And so they're living at a time where they'd already forgotten their own history. And so that's what we do with the collection that we have, is we bring out, for example, the Founding Fathers having debates over abortion. Right. Or the fact that George Washington is the one who instituted the first ban on homosexuals in the military in May of 1778. Or the fact that James Madison led the fight on the floor of Congress that the federal government should not bail out private businesses that were too big to fail. I mean, all these things we <laughs> deal with, we've already dealt with before. Sure. And so people say, go, really? We used to be like, and, and so that's really what we do is bring out history and say, here's the way we've done it. Here's why we're successful. Here's why the free market system works. Here's why we have American exceptionalism. And so that's wall builders. That, that's who we are and what we do. Gotcha. So on your website, it says, Wall Builders promotes the view that the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation, and because of that, should be ruled by biblical principles. And that Wall Builders is a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. Did I get that right? 
part. Um, okay. I, you know, the Christian nation part's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun with that. Alan Combs, before he died, we had a one-hour debate over this. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. And it's not that I say they were a Christian nation. It's more than 300 courts, federal courts, said we're a Christian nation. Now, to say you're a Christian nation day, I have all this collection of articles. You get called the Taliban. You get called the free will right. You get called a theocrat. Well, I don't think you can argue that the federal courts for 200 years were being theocratic or establishing a theocracy or that they were part of the Taliban. There's got to be a reason that 300 federal courts have said we're a Christian nation. Now, why would they do that? That's because we have a different definition. And so the definition that we use today, and, and the left uses it, and they're the ones that have really changed the definition, as they change many definitions. Right. Uh, Christian Nation Day means you all have to be Christians to live there. You can't hold off unless you're Christian. Only Christians get rights. No, no, no. The, the, the way this went was the court said, and in the unanimous Supreme Court decision in 1892, they said, we're a Christian nation because Christianity has shaped and molded the culture. Okay. Now, that's a different definition from what we get today. Sure. So from a historical definition, what happens when I repeat 300 court cases, I'm not saying it's a Christian nation. They did. Right. But the definition is that Christianity shaped and molded it. And so what we do historically is we say, well, actually, if you go to the free market system, we often credit Adam Smith with the free market system, father of, of modern economics, except America had the free market economic system operating fully a century before he wrote that book. Now, the Anastasia Library, I've got his original first edition, 1776, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, except back in the 1660s, we already had the free market nailed. Now, how did we do that? And historically, you check historical writings, there are five Bible verses that the Pilgrims and the Jamestown Colony and others used to create the free market system. So courts used to say, you know, it's the Bible that shaped our free market economic systems, shaped competition, shaped the choice to choose the products you want. So that means we're part of a Christian nation because the Bible shaped it. But probably the best example is if I go to a really liberal, progressive, secular Supreme Court Justice Breyer, no one's going to argue that he's part of the religious right. <laughs> right. In one of his decisions, he talked about how that he said, well, of course, we all know that every one of the clauses in the Due Process Clauses, and that's the Fourth through the Eighth Amendment, so the right to compel witnesses and the right to have an attorney and trial. He said, of course, we know that every one of those rights came out of the Bible. Hmm. Really? Do we know that? And so I looked at his footnotes to see what he's citing. And if, if you are a federal attorney and practice federal law, you have a, a set of volumes called Federal Practice and Procedure. Right. It shows you how to practice federal right. law. Volume 30 of Federal Practice and Procedure has nearly 60 pages on how every clause in the Due Process Clauses came out of the Bible, and it shows you the Bible verses. Now, most people today don't know that, but even Breyer knew that. And so that's why earlier courts said we're a Christian nation. So I, I'm not the one who says we're a Christian nation. I just repeat what history said, but I use a different definition from the way they've redefined it today. Do you, do you get some pretty vitriolic reactions from people when you say, uh, or, or repeat that the courts and the founding fathers uh, created the nation based on Christian principles. Oh yeah, you, you get you get very virile reactions. Um, and as a matter of fact, the courts all point out and said, "Look, we're not European Christianity. We're Reformation Christianity. European Christianity coerces faith. It tells you what faith to believe. Throws you in jail if you go to the wrong church. You have the Inquisition, Crusades." said, over here, we believe in free choice of religion because we're a Christian nation. We invite Jews, we invite Muslims, we invite everybody, and they all get their choice of faith. 
Well, that was true Christian faith. Jesus coerced no one to believe. Anybody who wanted to could, and if they didn't want to, that was fine. Same in the Old Testament. Joshua said, hey, I'm going to serve the Lord, but you guys can serve the God of the Amorites or the Egyptian gods. And so that, that was true faith. And so what the courts pointed out was religious liberty comes from true Christianity, not from medieval Christianity, but from biblical Christianity. But if I say that, they go through the roof. And, and I remember <laughs> the first phone call I got from a U.S. News and World Report guy. He said, did you know the ACLU just spent a million dollars to discredit you? Oh, wow. I go, really? Oh, well, that's great. Because it's a million dollars they can't spend in a school district somewhere. So great, that's right. You know? That's right. But, but they have now targeted me with so many tens of millions, literally, at this point. And, you know, it's, it's all about um, and, and the climate of the day you contaminate and you try to, you know, use... That's all right. That's why I put footnotes on documents on everything we do. Sure. Our, our books are loaded up with, usually all, we have one book, Original Tense, got I think 1,500 original citation footnotes to it, every court case decided. I let people see for themselves, and it's usually a pretty shocking thing to see what history was as opposed to what we've been taught. So what do you think is driving uh, the movement behind whitewashing uh, our historical uh, basis it's, for the nation. It's real easy to go in a different direction. It's real easy to go in a different direction if you don't know what your nation was, and if if you want to be like Europe, and, and I'll just point out, um, Justice Breyer recently wrote a book last year saying we got to get rid of the Constitution. This thing's holding us back. Wow. Uh, Ginsburg, the the court is in session from uh, October through June, and then June through October they travel the world and check other legal systems. Ginsburg and traveling says, she was talking to some younger nations, said, do not adopt the American Constitution. Get the South African Constitution, something else. Judge Richard Posner um, on the Seventh Circuit Court is doing lectures now about how judges have to stop using the Constitution. And so what happens is if you don't know your history, it's easy to move in a brand new direction. Now, when you know your history, you can't do that. And, right. and one, of the, one of the things that happens today is the way we teach history and politics and economics is why you have national leaders going across the world apologizing for America. Uh, recently was in a debate with a professor at university in Arizona. He said America has done much more evil in the world than she's ever done good. Mm. Really, how'd you get that? But that, that's what's being taught. Right. And, and so as we, in, we have, every two weeks we get 50 interns and college age kids that we talk to and they all have a negative view of America. As a matter of fact, I've been appointed in a number of states by governors, state boards of education to write the history and government standards. Right. Because we got the documents downstairs. And in doing that, um, the, the last history course a, high, a good high school history kid will take is the AP history course. And when the standards came out September 2014, redone by David Coleman, the college board, uh, when it got to World War II, grab this, World War II, America's involvement, there was no Hitler mentioned at all. There was no Holocaust mentioned at all. There was no D-Day mentioned at all. There was no Battle of the Bulge. There was no mention of Patton or of Eisenhower or of Truman or of Roosevelt. There were only six things mentioned. America interred Japanese, <laughs> segregation in the military. Right. We dropped an atomic bomb on Japan, which they said raised questions about American values. Six things. The only six things that America did in World War II, and they were all negative, every one of them. Wait a minute, how about we stop 60 million lives that have been lost and we freed the concentration camps and we ended the Holocaust and we freed Europe and gave it back to them? And right. How about that? No, we can't. So what happens today is, is if you can 
forget your history, you can move in a different direction. And you hear all those things, we want to be like Europe, we want health care like Europe, we want socialism like Europe, we want the government to give us stuff that they have. Well, how, how do you like being a third world nation, essentially? Because we've had our Constitution 229 years, the average length of a Constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. I frankly love not having a Constitution every 17 years. That's right. France That's has right. had 15 while well, we've had one. And you just go through the other European nations, you really like that kind of instability? But if you don't know history, you don't know that. So right. that's, why, that's why history is such a target. So uh, as we sit here in Alito, Texas, are, are high school children in Texas reading good history books? Oh, no. Oh, no. Now, Texas, better history books than others. Because last two cycles, I've, I've been one of the six experts to help do the history standards. And fortunately, people in Texas have done a great job of electing State Board of Education members. And so uh, in the last cycle, here in Texas, I mean, the last cycle we did, I was on the board, the, it starts with 240 teachers coming up with standards, and then it goes to the state board, and the state board has six of us that look over it, and so we make recommendations. They took the Alamo out of Texas history. Alamo was no longer part of Texas history. Wow. And in covering holidays here in Texas, Christmas was no, we added Diwali, but we took Christmas out. We're not going to talk about Christmas as a holiday, but we will talk about Diwali. Uh, they took out all military history. There was no longer the formation of the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, uh, uh, the Coast Guard. All that was gone. They took out Patton and Bradley. and all. So what was left? Well, we fought like crazy to get all that back in, and okay. we did. Teachers took it out. We got it back in. The State Board of Education got it back in. Texas drives textbooks, but you know, there's so much that we did not get in. And I will say that there's about 250 heroes that we cover in, in Texas history books. And the other side said, we don't want you to cover a hero unless you can show what group they're part of. That's strange. And I said, no, no, no. If they did something significant in history, we're going to show them. They said, no, no, it's got to be part of a group because we want all groups represented. I said, no, no. <laughs> we don't do the nation on groups. We do the nation on individuals. They said, but if you don't do it on groups, then everybody won't be. So in, in theirs, the, the 240 teachers and their progressive view, they and all the 250 heroes had 9% of the heroes were minorities because they showed all these groups. When we went through and said, no, we're doing it on individuals, it turned out 27% were minorities. That's so we tripled what they had by showing individualism, not groups. But at that, we still, um, people like Kathy Miller, Texas Freedom Network, or, you know, the secular side of this, they fought every single mention of faith or God or something wholesome. It was just amazing. And so there are very big lobby groups in Texas. The other problem you have is there's a reason that right now 19 pages in world history is on Islam and two pages on Christianity. And that's because even though we write good standards, your three major textbook publishers now all have major investors from Saudi Arabia. And so you get a very, very heavy dose of Islam, which is not very much a part of American history, sure. and very little dose of Christianity, which is a bigger part of American history. So even though we have good standards in Texas, Texas doesn't write the history books. Outside publishers do. And that's where you start having trouble with history books, even though they meet the standards. So Texas is a big state. And we have Huge a lot state. of people, a lot of Huge students. Why, why don't we commission the publishing of our own textbooks that meet our standards? You know, it's, it's been a, a debate on that. Um, and, and that was part of C-Scope. When C-Scope came out in Texas, that right. was thought to be a, a way to do that. But it was not vetted well at all. And, and you know, actually, there were so many, what was it, was it 5,000 historical mistakes that were in there? Right. But since it's an online curriculum, so that's easy to change. Well, we want you to do a little bit more thinking about it before you put bad history up. <laughs> right. So, you know, State Board of Education even looked at saying, you can have online curriculum and do that, but 
for every factual error, it's a $5,000 fine, which would give you an incentive to run it through the experts before you post it online. Sure. So that, that's been a problem. The other aspect is, is it takes somewhere between 20 and $80 million to create a curriculum. Wow. And so what happens is Texas and California, our two states, have 26% of the nation's public school kids. So when textbook publishers write their textbooks, they do it for Texas, California standards, because then if they can sell it in those states, they recover their 20 to $80 million. We're the only states big enough to help them recover their money. Right. So text, students in Kansas, I, I'm sorry, your textbook's based on Texas and California standards, regardless of what you said, because nobody can afford to print a textbook for the state of Kansas. There's not enough schools and kids in Kansas sure. to pay for it. Sure. So that's what the, the problem has been. It's, it's, free, it's a big free market risk. Uh, to do that in Texas, and Texas has not taken that on. And so if you can't make that textbook sell, you're going to lose money on the deal, and government already loses enough money as it is without going for something else. So they've tried to leave it to the free market to do it, but because of the, the kind of monopoly that exists with Saudi investors and others, it's, 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 a, it's a really difficult thing to do. Well, it seems like a big problem that, uh, that should be addressed by the legislature, by yep. the governor, or whoever needs to address yep. it, because we're talking about the future uh, of our state and our nation when it comes to what they're putting, what we're putting in their heads. Well, right? it's interesting right now. I'm not sure we're putting anything in their heads, uh, and I don't say that facetiously. I, I say that there, there's a group called the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, and so out of all the thousands of colleges out there, this this group kind of and what they do every year. They look at the list of elite colleges and universities by U.S. News and World Report. Right. This year, there's 76 on that list. So every year, ACTA looks at some subject being taught by the same. So this year, they looked at what are these schools teaching history majors? And so with history majors, what it turns out now of the 76 top universities in America, and what do you do with a history degree, by the way? Well, you, <laughs> go to law school. Oh, you go to law school. <laughs> you know that. So, so you go back and you teach history to school. You become a curriculum director for That's history right. or something. Sure. Yeah. So right now, out of the top 76 universities in America, only 11 universities require that a history major take even one course in American history. So 65 wow. out of the 76 top universities, you take zero courses in American history to get a history major. That's obscene. So you're going back, and, and same way, only 3% of American universities today require a course in free market economics, which is why I, I ran a super PAC for one of the candidates in the presidential, last presidential election when we had the, the Iowa caucus. 84% right. of the college kids in Iowa voted socialism. They said, we, we're Bernie kids. And we said, socialism? Do you know what? We, we don't know what it is, but we know it works great. Really? <laughs> Show me one example. But see, they don't get taught anything about free market. They get indoctrinated and not right. educated. Right. And so that's part of the problem you've got is it should be something we deal with. It's so bad. We have a network of about 800 state legislators from all 50 states. And so we share legislation, all share with each other back and forth. And what we have seen is that if you come to America and don't know anything about the country, we require you to take an immigration test to stay here. Sure. 100 questions, 92% of immigrants pass that test. It takes you two months to learn it and take the test. So 92% pass. What they started doing is they started giving the immigration test to graduating seniors in high school. Mm -hmm. Only 7% could pass the immigration test. 
So only 7% of our kids knew enough to be an American citizen. That is shocking. And, and so what's happened now in the last three years, 15 states have now adopted the immigration test as a high school exit exam. They want you to at least know as much as an immigrant <laughs> knows going out of school. So that's how poor we're doing on education. Right. Well, and I would say that's a good thing, but it's also a sad statement. On, say, on, on we ought to know a whole lot more education. than the, the immigration test should be the bare minimum. That's right. That's exactly You know, right. I mean, that's if you've never even heard of America and you come here and you want to live here. If you've grown up here, are you kidding? But see, right now, and you know, I, I hate to use numbers, but tell you, we do all this polling. Seven, no, 62% of Americans cannot name the three branches of government. 62%. Wow. 70% of voters did not know the Constitution's supreme law of the land. And grab this 48% of elected officials could not name the three branches of government. That's elected oh. officials. I tell you what, I'm getting depressed, so I'm going to change the subject. <laughs> um, That's why we do what we do at Wall well, Builders. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, one of the things Wall Builders does is encourages people of faith to become yeah. involved in the civic arena, which is, is, prob is, is frowned upon in, in yeah. popular culture these days. And on your website, you have a, a quote by President James Garfield, uh, which I'd like to read because I think it's, mm -hmm. it's apropos today as it was when he when he wrote it, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, but back in the mid-1800s, President Garfield said, now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be brilliant, brave, and pure, it is because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. If in the next centennial, that being the 1900s, does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in, the, in controlling the political forces. Mm -hmm. So what do you think President Garfield would think about the current state of affairs in America? The same thing everybody from that era and before would think is, how long did America last before it went under? Because this certainly in the country we gave you. Right. I mean, you, you guys, this is nowhere close. Up until the mid-1850s, voter turnout in America was 100% because we felt it was a duty to vote. It was not a right to vote. Um, one of my, I've got a Jew, my Jewish rabbi uh, points out, he says in Hebrew, you cannot say the word rights. You can only say responsibilities. <laughs> and so we're a very rights conscious people. I have the right to free speech. Well, you have a responsibility to tell the truth. I have a right to keep and bear arms. Well, you have a responsibility not to shed innocent blood. Right. With every right, there's, I have a right to vote and I'm not going to vote. No, you have a responsibility to vote. You don't have a right not to vote. And so we were stewards of the nation. We knew our documents. Uh, in the last four years, uh, in the last three years, I've been asked by four colleges to help start schools of government at their colleges. And so one of those schools this year had their first graduates. And in laying out the curriculum for them, you'll love this. Um, they have textbooks, but they're all old. They studied the Constitution from an 1828 <laughs> elementary school textbook on the Constitution. Oh, wow. They learned government uh, from an 1843 government textbook. They learned um, the, all, all the textbooks we use are from the eight, early 1800s. And I mentioned we have these 50 interns that come in every two weeks, and, and they're all college graduates or in college, 18 to 25. Some of them are in the master's program, some in the doctorate programs. We always start them off by giving them an eighth grade exit exam from, eight, from 1920. We have yet to have a single kid pass the eighth grade exam from 1920. Oh, geez. Nobody went past school 
nobody went past eighth grade in 1920. That's as high as you went. When right. you're in eighth grade, you either get a career or you go to college. When worked farm. And we cannot get a single college kid to pass eighth. So w w when you look back, that old stuff really works well. Sure. And so our kids are quite capable of doing this. It's just the paradigm the progressive gave us in 1920. They made five major educational shifts in the 20s, and we're still living with them today. So every time we try educational reform, it's like rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic. You want to have educational reform? Go back to what we were doing prior to the 1920s when they screwed up education philosophically. Get away from that pedagogy. Go to something that works. Right. And we can prove that that does work. So it's it's an interesting time in our history. Without a doubt. And, and so when when you as wall builders uh, encourage Christians to get involved in public office, what mm -hmm. kind of response do you get uh, from the national media when you say Christians should be running for office? You know, we ignore numbers. the national media. We really don't care about Good for them. you. <laughs> uh, I mean, they they write articles on me all the time. There's one guy out there over the last three years has written four four hundred articles against me. Fine, have, have fun. Free right. speech, Constitution protects you. Do it. Um, our job is to get people elected and get people turned out. So we, for example, um, in city elections in two major cities in Texas where they average 2.9% turnout in city elections, we got it up to 15.4%. Wow. Uh, one city we went in and got 5,000 churches active. One city we went in at 2,100 churches, got them active, and in both cases it went from 2.9% voter turnout to 15.4%. Had a real different outcome in government. Um, 2.9 percent is what you get at local elections as you go up to state reps and others it gets higher and higher up to president but it's still pathetic you know pathetic turnout so we work hard to educate people and get them involved that is their duty that's not a right sure. mentioned. and we think particularly Christians should be good stewards of what God's placed in our hands we think God gave us a blessed nation we've been fairly blessed with this country we ought to protect it right and the least you can do is vote and so we, we get really good response. Of course, we get a lot of opposition. That, that's just the day we live in. You know, right. No issues. But there's a lot of people who do connect and get involved. Sure. So earlier this month, and I'm sure you saw this confirmation hearing of, of Russell Vogt uh, to be Deputy Director of the Office of Management and yep. Budget. And Senator Bernie Sanders attacked Mr. Vogt for a written statement in which he said Muslims don't know God. And I, and I want to I'll let you listen to this clip again. I know you've heard it, and then I'd like to get your reaction mm -hmm. to it. I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know, probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too? Senator, I'm a Christian. I, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion. But there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And do you think your statement that you put into that publication they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned. Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone 
with what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. So how do you react to that? Well, it's, it's interesting that Bernie Sanders considers himself an arbiter of theology. Right. Because what we're into there is theology, and that is the one thing the federal government is prohibited from interfering with is theology. Sure. And so any religion believes that it is the way to heaven. Otherwise, they wouldn't be part of it. Right. I got news for, for the, the, the senator. Muslims don't think Christians are going to heaven. You know, Jews don't think Muslims or Christians are going to Everybody thinks that. So are you saying that everybody should be excluded? So what he's saying is if you're religious, you have a belief I'm going to disagree with, and none of you should be in office. Really? Exactly. Right. That's the position of the federal government now? That's crazy. So, you know, just because Bernie Sanders doesn't have a clue which way is up and down in theology doesn't mean other people don't. <laughs> that is true. And so, you know, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution um, says that all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and the states, shall be bound by an oath of office or affirmation to support the Constitution. But it says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. So was Bernie Sanders, in essence, applying a religious test? I would test? say no. And the reason I say that because of original intent. Original intent, uh, Article 6, the religious test was a denominational test. And it was because at the time, with 13 states, nine of them had state-established denominations. Okay. And so, whereas you have Anglicans in South Carolina and you got Congregationalists in, in Massachusetts, a religious test was you have to be a Congregationalist to hold office. You have to be a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic. So it was that was to keep the federal government from becoming one national state-established denomination. But it was never to. It was not until 1961 in the case Tor, Torcaso Watkins that the U.S. Supreme Court said, oh, by the way, we think having no religious test means you can't require belief in God. Well, until 1961, state constitution said, you, Maryland state constitution says, you can't hold office if you don't believe in God. Right. And they said, that's a religious test. No, it wasn't because the founding fathers are the one who wrote that. So the same guys who wrote there's no religious test also wrote the requirement that you have to believe in God to hold office, so it clearly didn't violate it. So by original in, intent, religious test means the federal government can't set up a national state established denomination. Okay. But now Bernie Sanders is heading that way by saying, oh, you believe the wrong stuff, therefore you're disqualified. Right. But he's not establishing that you have to have a certain set of beliefs and a denomination to belong. So I think he's getting really you know, close. Number one, he doesn't understand free exercise of religion because the guy can believe what he wants to. Number two, he doesn't understand free speech because the guy can write what he wants to. Right. So he's already struck out on several constitutional clauses anyway. <laughs> sure. And by their own definition, he would strike out on Article 6, although the current definition is not the original intent definition. If that well, makes so, sense. so let's let's talk about that. I mean, the first clause of the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Uh, so that um, you know that particular clause, Thomas Jefferson spoke about in a letter uh, to the Dan Danbury Baptist Association in 1802, mm -hmm. and and that's when he first used the phrase separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the point that you think he was trying to make uh, to the Danbury Baptist Association? And do you think this concept of separation of church and state is misunderstood today? It's misunderstood. It's a valid concept, but it's totally redefined today, as many things have been. Uh, the phrase actually in what we call the modern era goes back to the 1500s. First time it was used in almost a thousand years, 1500, uh, Reverend Richard Hooker used it in Great Britain. And in Great Britain you had a situation where the, the pastor of the pilgrims, John Greenwood, Pastor of the Pilgrims made the radical statement that said Jesus Christ is head of the church. 
At that point, Queen Elizabeth killed him. She said, no, I'm head of the church. Mm -hmm. We have a state-established church. Well, he said, Jesus Christ head of the church. So they then passed a law that says if anyone denies Her Majesty's ecclesiastical supremacy, they'll be committed to prison without bail. And that's when the pilgrims left Great Britain and went to Holland and then from Holland to America. But we're, we're at that point saying if you deny that the civil leader is head of church and state, if you deny that that person is head of both, then you're in serious trouble. Right. And so that's when Richard Hooker said there has to be a separation of church and commonwealth. That was his phrase, church and commonwealth. Okay. The pilgrims then arrive in America and they said there should be a separation of church and state. And so what they did was they set up two different elections. One election you elected your religious leaders, one elected you elected your civil leaders. So for the first time in a thousand years, you have a separation of church and state where the civil leaders are different from religious leaders, not the same. And so that was the concept that we had in America that was very different from Europe where they had state-established religions. Right. Uh, in Jefferson's case, he was in probably the most state-established religion state in the United States, Virginia. Virginia, he's an Anglican himself. Anglicans were only 9% of the state, but they were the state-established religion by Great Britain's decree. And so they killed Quakers who were not preaching Anglican doctrine. Oh, wow. They fined and imprisoned and um, beat Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, and others. Jefferson went into court fighting for all the other denominations. He said, no, no, no. He said, all Christian denominations are equal. Right. And so when he became, when we separate from Great Britain in 1776, he promptly thereafter introduced the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty that disestablishes all denominations in Virginia. It was not passed until 1786, uh, but in the meantime, he was in court fighting for this. So Jefferson's view of separation of church and state is you can't have a state-established denomination. So as it goes on, and by the way, it didn't mean secular, I mentioned that in just a second, but as it goes on, because he fought for the Baptists in Virginia, when he got elected president in 1801, he gets all these letters from Baptists across the nation, because Baptists in every state are the minority. There's sure. not a state except Rhode Island where Baptists are majority. So they say, man, has God raised you up for such a time as this? He gets all these praise letters. Right. We're praying for you. Thank God for you. And he wrote back and said, thank you. And he said, I'm reciprocating your prayers for your work. But one letter from Jeremiah Dodge, Danbury Baptist Association, Danbury, Connecticut, said, you know, here in Connecticut, um, they've got all these, because they're a congregational state, they've got all these laws going. And, and he said, we're really concerned for our religious liberty. And Jefferson said, you don't have to be concerned for your religious liberty. There's a wall of separation between church and state. And so he goes on to, it's a 233-word letter, three paragraphs. And he goes on to explain, because the wall of separation, the government will never stop your religious activities. Oh, wait. I thought they stopped kids from saying God at graduation or right. from saying a prayer at school. Or, sure. No, First Amendment was designed to keep government from stopping religious activities, and that's Jefferson. And that's why you'll find that um, two years before, three years before he wrote that letter, we had just moved into the U.S. Capitol. December, actually it was the 17th of uh, November, 1800, we moved into the U.S. Capitol. Jefferson is vice president, which means he's president over the Senate. On December the 4th of 1800, they decided that they would start every Sunday using the biggest room in the capital of the United States as a church. Jefferson went to church there for eight years. When he's huh. president, he's going to church at the U.S. Capitol. Wow. So when he writes a separation church and state letter on Friday, January the 1st, 1802, two days later on Sunday, January 1st, 1802, <laughs> he's in church at the Capitol, sure. and the guy preaching is the guy he asked to preach at the Capitol. It's nice. the Reverend John Leland. And by the way, Jefferson also signed federal treaties sending 
giving federal money to send missionaries to the Indians. He did, uh, Jefferson started the plan of education in Washington, D.C. public schools. He personally put the Bible in as a reading text in Washington, D.C. public schools. He wasn't opposed to religion in public life, which is why it says Congress shall make no law respecting establishment religion. That's not a school board. That's not a city council. That, that's not a guy in the military. Monifa Sterling just got court-martialed because she put a yellow sticky up with a Bible verse on her computer, and that violated separation of church and state, so she's gone. Are you kidding? Wow. Yeah. You know, how, how far it's going. So there is, there is a proper separation, but we haven't used it in about 50 years. <laughs> so it, it's extremely disconcerting to me that you had men of faith like Thomas Jefferson who, who founded this country uh, on Christian. That will get you in trouble, Trey. You can't say Jefferson's a man of faith. Are you kidding? He's one of the atheist founding fathers. Okay. So, so you, but, just, uh, you didn't do it on purpose, but, uh, but, but you gave me an opening. Yeah, right? You right. gave me an opening to ask that's you about right. your book. Uh, Jefferson lies, mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of the lies have been perpetuated about Jefferson, right. the fact he was an atheist or a non-believer, and, and those same lies have been perpetuated about a lot of our founding fathers, but you wrote a book uh, to rebut those lies. Uh, tell us about that book briefly. Yeah, that, that book is real interesting because, again, we have so many original documents, and there are about six major things professors say that are dead wrong by, by original documents. So when the first edition of the book came out, all the professors said, oh, this is terrible. You're saying, that's not what we say. You're wrong. And so uh, another publisher picked it up and said, we want you to write a rebuttal to professors, which we did, which was a lot of fun. Right. Because, you know, now we've got like 1,300 footnotes going back to original stuff. But let me just take an example. Okay. Um, and I talk to college groups all the time. And, you know, I had a group of about 300 college kids. I said, how many of you have been taught by your professors that Thomas Jefferson slept with Sally Hemings and produced the, the children of Sally Hemings. Right. And 95% of hands went up. Now, what's interesting about that is in 1998, November 1998, DNA, well actually, Science and Nature magazine released a DNA report on Jefferson's DNA written about by Professor Joseph Ellis that says, we now know DNA proves that Jefferson fathered her children. Mm -hmm. And that came out in November 1998. That's what everybody bases it on. Right. Nobody knows that six weeks later they retracted the story because it proved exactly the opposite. We hmm. talked twice to the guy who did the DNA testing, Eugene Foster. He said, no. He said, I told him it didn't say that. But at the time, Clinton was being impeached. And at the time, Joseph Ellers was a big fan of Clinton and had actually been part of a full-page ad not to impeach Clinton in the New York Times. So he comes out and says, oh, look, Jefferson has sexual liaisons with people, too. Uh, What's the big deal? He's the great president. Nobody impeached him. Why are we impeaching Clinton? Gotcha. Well, what happens is 221 news organizations ran for the story that Jefferson did it. Only 11 ran with the retraction that Jefferson didn't do it. So to this day, that's a lie out there. That, and, and by the way, here, here's the most interesting question about it. It turns out they did not use any of Jefferson's DNA in the test. Now, so, so whose did say, they use? Uh, they used his uncle's DNA. Okay. Huh. Now, if you want to say Jefferson fathered the children, why don't you try his DNA? Oh, I, I believe there's some locks of hair of his um, laying around somewhere. Well, see, the problem is you have to have a male descendant. And Jefferson had one son, and he died before Jefferson did. Okay. So there are no male descendants of Jefferson because the Y chromosome remains unchanged. So they can't test the DNA. So DNA can't prove it because it doesn't exist. 
But it's interesting, after that fiasco, there were about, I think it's either 12 or 13 professors from major universities at Harvard, University of Kentucky, and they all believed Jefferson had done it, and they got together and looked at every bit of available evidence and all unanimously came back and said, no, the evidence is just the opposite. Jefferson didn't do it. But nobody heard that story. So That's amazing. those are the kind of lies that are out there. That's why we did the book, Jefferson Lies. Right. These six major things the professor keeps saying today that's not based on historical truth. Now, if you want to say you hate Jefferson, say it. Sure. But don't make up lies about him because you don't like him. You know, right. that, that's fine. Just say, I don't, I don't think, well, Jefferson didn't do it because D-Day didn't prove it, but I don't like Jefferson anyway. Great. But don't tell me Jefferson fathered all of her children when DNA doesn't prove that. Which is more that fake news, right? That's fake news. <laughs> and Jefferson had lots in his day, too. Oh, wow. Lots of fake news. So you, you alluded to this earlier. Uh, during the last presidential cycle, you headed up the Keep the Promise Pack for, for Senator Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. um, Senator Cruz did fairly well in the campaign, but not well enough uh, right. to become president. So we are, we are now in June of 2017. How do you think President Trump is doing so far? Well, for a guy who has zero political experience, I like the tone that he sits in a lot of areas. I like what he's done with the judiciary. Of course, Gorsuch is, is a great natural law guy. That's right. a huge win. He has now made two other sets of appointments a judge of below that. There's 140 judicial positions that are open. He's now made two, I think that's now maybe three dozen people he's put in, and they're really good constitutional guys, original tent guys. Right. I really like that. I really like the tone that we set with the military. Uh, I like the fact that, um, for, for example, when, when Syria went and used chemical warfare, we said, have 30 tomahawks right here on your runway and right at your fuel depots. And by the way, we could have got you if we wanted to, but sure. we, we, that's a great message. Right. On the day that Mattis goes in, we hit ISIS 31 times on the day that he goes in. And then Mattis announces his change. He said, for the past eight years, our official policy has been uh, that we fight a war of attrition. We keep ISIS moving from place to place. He says, we're now fighting a war of extermination. There's not going to be enough left to go home. Good. And, right. you know, I, I like that tone. Then when one of, the, uh, one of the ISIS guys steps out of a cave and pops a green beret, we drop a Moab on them and say, you right. don't ever want to do that again. Don't right. mess with us. Sure. And, and so that will save lives. And, and that kind of clarity that if you, if you touch me with a knife, I will hit you with a tank. Nobody wants to mess with it. And I was talking to one of my good friends in Israel who's a special forces guy there, and he said he was asking their generals, he said, what about ISIS? He said, they all laughed at me. He said, ISIS, that's a bunch of thugs with Toyota pickup trucks. ISIS is not a problem. <laughs> you ever noticed ISIS attacking Israel? Right. ISIS never bothers Israel Correct. because they know the consequence. I think we've set that tone now, and that, that'll save lives. Well, good. It's, it's good that we're finally, uh, after eight years of apologizing, yeah. uh, that we're actually showing strength around the world again. Well, I love the fact that the, the first budget proposals cut 31% from the State Department, cut 28% from the EPA, uh, that you cannot pass a regulation unless you repeal two regulations. Right. Um, then you've got all these executive orders. We're no longer doing FPA. We're no longer doing USAID. Uh, where we were paying federal money to help encourage abortion, homosexuality overseas. That's not the role of the federal government to do that. Right. We shouldn't have been paying for that. I love the fact that we're now back to the Mexico City policy. We're not going to use federal dollars to do abortions overseas. Uh, and it, we're starting to get some cogency back in the way we use federal funds and some budget cuts. Uh, 66 entire programs cut out of the federal budget um, this, this, I mean, just federal agencies, 66 agencies cut. I like all that stuff. Right. I, I think it's really good. Uh, so we'll see. You know, we're back to pro-energy position. 
there's some things to complain about, but from my viewpoint, there's a whole lot of things to like what's going on. Right. Well, and, and despite all these good things going on, uh, depending on the numbers you look at, 80 to 90 percent of all news articles and press about the president mm -hmm. is negative. Mm -hmm. So it, it worries me to some degree what the what impression the American people are getting, even though all of these good things are happening. You know, it's interesting. Some of the numbers I've seen have been as high as 93 percent. And with all that, I, I saw that it's over five billion dollars in earned media spent against him by by media to this point. Right. Uh, his numbers of his support numbers have only moved two percent with five billion, <laughs> and I think that's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. You know that, that that you can do that. And so if things go in the right direction, and you know nothing's going to happen for another three three and a half years anyway. It's the first time they can replace him. Sure. They're not going to impeach him. They can make all the noise they want. That makes good fake news and good news stories. Right. But he's going to be for three and a half years. It depends on what happens with budget, what happens with jobs, what happens with the military overseas, what happens with Russia, what happens with China, so North Korea. It, if he handles that, it doesn't matter how much negative they spend, people are still going to be there. Right. Uh, if the judges start getting things right and stop making policy, people are going to love that. So I'm not worried about it particularly. It's way too early. Um, but you know that's like worrying about the the Iowa primary in January. Well, the ones you <laughs> worry, worry about are the ones in May and June. That's you right. Know, that's that's right. Iowa is just one. Well, well, we'll continue to hope and pray for the best. Uh, Mr. Barton, I appreciate you allowing us into your office today. Uh, you have so many great resources and books. I would encourage my audience to go to wallbuilders.com. Uh, and, and if they want some of these books, they can purchase those on the website? They can. They can go to okay. wallbuilders.com, purchase those books, materials, and lots of free stuff, too. They can see those artifacts and documents for themselves that we keep posting online as well. And lots of good videos as well. Lots of videos. We, uh, on, our, on our YouTube channel and on Facebook, uh, we put out one to two new videos every week that are all short, one, two-minute videos, just highlighting something cool going on. Very good. Well, we'll definitely put that website address on our page and encourage our audience to go visit and to, to, to look at some of those items. And as we discussed before the show, it's our tradition on the Trey Blocker Show to end each episode mm -hmm. with some words of wisdom from our guest, a Bible verse, a, a song mm -hmm. lyric, or, or something that has some meaning to you. So you have something to share with our audience yeah, today? Yeah, I, I would share, the one I would share is uh, the one that America shared for about a century and a half, and it comes out of George Washington's farewell address considered the greatest political speech ever given by any president ever. For a hundred years, you were required to take a written exam on it once a year in, in schools. Everybody had to know this. Washington, in the dozen or so warnings that he gave there, great warnings. One is don't let the federal government get into deficit spending. Great warning. We just don't do that anymore. Right. But the one he gave, he said, of all the habits and dispositions that lead to political prosperity, Religion and morality are indispensable supports. He said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. So his litmus test is, I know a patriot when I see one, and I'll not let you call yourself a patriot if you try to undermine religion and morality out of America. So I love that quote from Washington. That's our political prosperity. Those are the two supports for what makes our politics work is religion and morality. We get away from those. Politics becomes corrupt and we start looking like Europe. Well, Mr. Barton, thanks for being on the show today, and uh, we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks, Trey. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming up. Thank you, sir. It. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. If you like what you heard, please visit TreyBlocker.com for more episodes and a chance to donate and support the show. Thank you for listening.